But again, now I still think it's it's only one piece of the puzzle. We forget about how that tendon is used if if we just concentrate only on the muscle action. That tendon, a great muscle action with a poor tendon ability and coordination is only going to take you so far. So I think it's always important to put it into the picture. So I always combine now my plyometrics and my isometrics together. And I also look at different variations of the isometrics that bleed into more of a running based action, if you like, where there's you're off of a Smith machine, you're you're unstable now and you're running um, or, or replicating a running type movement. That was Alex Natera, senior athletic performance specialist at the GWS Giants, speaking on the blending of isometrics and plyometrics for optimal sprint training results. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Free Lap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Free Lap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 86 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We have got an incredible episode lined up featuring Alex Natera, who is a senior athletic performance specialist at the GWS Giants. Alex has over 20 years experience in high performance sport, including time spent as a professional sportsman, a technical coach, a sports science lecturer, a published scientific researcher, and as well as his primary role as a strength and conditioning coach. He was also at Aspire Academy Athletics, where he specialized in uh, weight room work for the sprint events. And if you've been around the webpage for Just Fly Sports for a while, you've noticed, um, or you very likely noticed, it was probably our most popular article of the last two or three years, was Alex's uh, work that he's doing with sprinters, improving speed using isometric training, as well as his progression uh, with super maximal training, isometrics, and what he terms switches and catches. And Alex is one of the best in the field. Uh, Aspire Academy is is legit. It draws some of the best coaches from around the world. And as you saw, if you read in the Q and A, uh, his work can get results. Um, right now, a lot of the stuff, as and Alex will mention this in the podcast, but a lot of the isometric uh, training ideals isn't really heavily researched. We have a lot of anecdotes, but anecdotally. Uh, Alex has gotten some really great results from the weight room that at very, very least um, played major assistance in athletes running faster out on the track. And so, I mean, this is something that is obviously very important and applicable 
I know there's uh, not only a lot of track coaches, but a huge population of strength and conditioning coaches listening to the show. And uh, honestly, I think the issue of strength and conditioning or, or strength training or getting things in the weight room to make athletes faster uh, in acceleration, it's probably not hugely debated, but, but as soon as you get out of acceleration and into top ends running speed or faster running speed, it is really debated. Um, and a lot of people will just think, you know, it doesn't, the weight room isn't going to do anything at that point. But I think listening to Alex and his system that he's created over the years, you might start to think differently. And Alex's work is unique. It's fresh. It's stuff that uh, as you listen to his own background, you'll understand that he has almost been developing for years and years and years from the back in the time that he was an athlete himself. And and those are the coaches that I really, um, there's, a, there's a special place in talking to those coaches who not only who are creating great things for their athletes, but who have done it using themselves as their own, um, their own guinea pig, so to speak, for years and years and years, testing, tweaking, seeing what worked, what didn't work, slowly honing it on athletes, bringing it back to the drawing board. I, I feel like things that are really directly applicable and uh, changing to the industry have a huge impact. They start there before they get to the research. So anyways, I first heard of Alex actually on the Historic Performance Podcast, and it was my intrigue there that led me to reach out to him, and he was so generous to um, provide such an amazing response for the, the Q&A and the article that, that he wrote. So prior to the GWS Giants and Aspire, Alex has also uh, done work with the Olympic and Commonwealth Games, working with over uh, a dozen sports. He's also currently completing his PhD from Bonn University, where he is investigating a novel aspect of power development, high volume power training, and repeat power ability. Also, while he was at Aspire, at Aspire he was actually coaching uh, a club rugby in, in a technical uh, head coach capacity, which I think is awesome. I, I really enjoy talking with coaches who are not just in one aspect of the trenches, so to speak, but are seeing things from different ends. So it's always good. Uh, so we're really going to dig in today on the episode to Alex's uh, methods, well, his background as an athlete and how he came up with his isometric training protocol for sprint speed. We're also going to talk about super maximal training, how he progresses that, how he uses that as a backbone. Uh, We're also going to chat about uh, how he combines plyometrics, specific case studies with isometrics, specific setups, training setups for super maximal training, um, the knee and hip and ankle perspective. Uh, We're also going to go into yearly progressions for more advanced sprint athletes versus those of lower classifications. And I also ask Alex for his top three exercises. If he had to pick three, which ones would he use for improving athletic speed? And so today's podcast is going to really encapsulate a lot of uh, what I would call a modern, fresh approach, a simple approach really at its, at its bare bones to improving athletic speed. So this episode, uh, just this episode combines so many elements practical, useful, and I've been excited to get Alex on the podcast for a long time. So here we go. Episode 86, uh, Just Fly Performance Podcast with Alex Natera. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Joel, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm super stoked to talk to you. I mean, after you wrote that article uh, on Just Fly Sports or, or did the Q&A about isometric training and sprinting speed, that just not only did it um, kind of tie a lot of things together I've been thinking about, but also just invoked to me a lot of new ideas uh, and, and just an amazing piece in, in what you've been doing. And uh, can we just start off today? First question I'd like to ask you, just what's your background as an athlete? What, what did you, sports did you do? And how did that lead you in the field of sports performance? Yeah, sure. Um, 
so from sort of youth and junior levels, I sampled like like many of um, many many people do. Um, I guess I found particular um, abilities at uh, well, funny enough, swimming to start with, where I swam um, nationally and, and and for state and uh, and athletics as well, where I ran the eight hundred for state here in in, in Australia. Um, weightlifting and um, and uh, and rugby were were, were my major. Uh, sports and it was rugby union that really I carried on after school and played professionally with um, and then semi-professionally for quite a long time really probably only really officially retiring from um, from a contract based um, uh, system at uh, age of 32 or so so I played probably far too long for um for my body to handle which I'm, I'm regretting now but um, yeah that was my, my basic um, sports uh career um within sort of the lower levels of, of rugby that i was playing professionally so sort of the championship level in, in the uk i was able to start studying my undergrad uh, undergraduate and my master's in um, sports sciences and uh through that period of time i was really fortunate enough um to be able to start working in the industry so that was probably about 20 years ago then i started with um uh, with a, a corporate facility where I where I ran it, um, and we we specialised in in sporting people um, from the weekend warrior right through to uh, world champion squash players, for instance. Um, and that was cool. That was my first insight into uh, strength and conditioning for athletic development or performance. Um, through that work, I got picked up for my first sort of real gig in um, in elite sport, where I where I worked in the English Premier League uh, soccer for for the best part of three years and from there it just snowballed my career and was in rugby again elite rugby professional rugby for another four or five years um until i eventually went into um the institutes of sports and was managed to work in a number of different countries um in their sort of elite sporting institutes where there's collaborative working staff practitioners from different um different sport sciences and social sciences psychology and medical and working hand in hand with sport coaches to, to deliver performance at sort of major, major games like the Olympic games. Um, so I guess and somewhere in the middle of there, I also lectured as well for two years um, uh, in sports science and strength and conditioning science and, and also um, different uh, coaching science modules. Um, but throughout, uh, I guess throughout that time, um, I was able to luckily work and, um, and, and play my sport and then uh, eventually finally uh, retiring from my sport and carrying on with my, uh, my working career. Yeah, and you've, you've since then too, or in the course of that, you spent some time working with track and field sprinters. And then uh, tell me a little bit about where, how you kind of um, that made that transition to where you are now and who you're working with now. Yeah, so I guess when I became uh, institutionalized, so when I started working with institutes, institutes of sports, that was around nine or ten years ago now, and my very first um, gig in an institute was with the English Institute of Sport, which is uh, which is an experience that I, I, I'm ever grateful for, and I think that's where I really kicked off my career and my understanding of you know sports sciences and performance um, knowledge, um, and that's when I had my first exposures working with track and field athletes down at uh, Bath University. Um, and from then on, um, all the way through my institute career, I've, again, a, about a decade's worth of time working with sprinters and also middle distance runners, um, culminating to uh, my, my former job, which was at Aspire Academy, where I just specialized with the sprinters um, 
and we that was a five-year process there out of Aspire Academy where we had fantastic mentors from 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 Altus from all around the world really Hakan Anderson and Jonas Dodu and Lawrence Seagrave coming to, to help us out with different um, different aspects of sprint performance and so learning from them and then just the great coaches that were working there at the time as well um, and then that's taken me really to my job now where I accepted a job here out in Sydney um, so moving from the Middle East out back home effectively uh, working in a, a brand new sport in Australian Football League often called Aussie Rules so I've started that um, early December December 1st it was my, my first day to be honest and um, it's now been a couple of months into it and uh, big learning curves, uh, learning a new sport and, and the demands um, of the sport and certainly bringing some things from track and field and my, my, my sprinting background back into my, my original sports, which are, which are team sports orientated. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And, and being able to transition back and, and that's that's really great opportunity for you. I, I'm really excited. I like that you work with not only sprinters, but middle distance as well. And just because I think um, just the idea of things that transfer to running in general, um, training that transfers to running in general, I think is a really powerful concept. And so one of the things that I really or the main topic I wanted to chat with you about today, Alex, was uh, integrating isometrics into training for running speed. Before I ask that, what's your background? Like, what got you interested in isometrics? I know I asked you this via email, I think. I was like, how did you come up with all this stuff? Like, this is awesome. And so what's your background? Can you kind of take me into your initial experiences with isometric training uh, and how did you progress it over the years? Yeah, so I guess I guess my first exposure personally to isometrics was as a, uh, I guess, a fumbling teenager looking through looking to get better performances um, in my own sport. Um, so I, I figured, you know, we would, from a conditioning aspect, a, a, a metabolic conditioning aspect, aspect, energy system development, we kind of develop everything, you know, aerobic, anaerobic, alactic, and, you know, in from a strength and power development, we'll, we'll work on high load stuff, lower load stuff and shift it faster. We'll do plyometrics. But then it, it, there was always, a, okay, if we do everything to develop everything, then why then when I'm learning about muscle actions, why do we just primarily develop the one action, which is the concentric action? So back then, even as a teenager, I was already playing around with um, eccentrics and isometrics. And it was kind of the thought process of um, like we have all gone through, just work hard and fail everything. So I'd fail my concentric and I'd then fail my isometric and then I'd fail my eccentric and I'd be absolutely dead, but that was kind of my first um, work around it. And then I looked at things that occurred on the sporting field, and I was like, look, some of these actions are against immovable objects, effectively. So that then got me thinking more about, well, then to train specifically to be better at that action, I need to, I need to be doing that itself in the gym, you know, rather than working on an action that's not that similar, you know. Um, so I guess that's the first background, the grounding um around why I started playing with isometrics. Um, I was very much, um, before I started my career, very much around reading texts. But then as I started my career and I you know, started doing my studies, it was more about the research that was out there. There's not a lot of research in this area, but it kind of, I guess, from, an, uh, from a, I guess maybe not, a, not the best space, I guess. I didn't, I didn't look at a lot of the texts out there on isometrics. I was off on other and avenues and tangents. So I didn't read about it until a lot of the science started coming out. Um, and, um, and that's where I got a lot of my, my thoughts and ideas from. But I've got, to, I've got to put it back down to really a great mentor, a great, probably the best, 
one of the best managers I've ever had, and, and a guy named Chris McLeod back at the EIS. I was so I was working with effectively middle distance runners back then, and um, we didn't have a lot of buy-in. We struggled with certain things. There was there was different avenues that came up that prop up in the in the training environment that you've got to cater for, and and my boss just happened to mention Chris McLeod happened to mention why don't you try isometrics, and that was it. And then from then on, it just snowballed after that. So I tried isometrics with, with great, it was great success um, in one athlete. And then um, from then on, which was probably, that was around 2008, I would think, 2009, I then started growing the repertoire of isometric work. Initially, it was testing the mid-thigh pull, and it was, uh, it was a position that was you know similar to mid-stance, um, perhaps a little bit more flex, but we were drawing conclusion that this was um, – you know, the rate of force development measured by a mid-thigh pull and the peak forces were a good predictor of performance in many different sporting actions. So I figured if, if we're testing in that environment and uh, why, why aren't we training in that environment as well, particularly as the growing body of evidence was coming out that, uh, that there was potential for an isometric muscle action um, in running rather than a eccentric concentric muscle action. So, um, I, I started trying that, but, um, I changed it to from a double leg effectively where we're testing it and, and put it into a single, single leg position with straps around the wrist and on the bar. So then the athlete could exert as hard as they could against the bar and the force plate effectively without losing their grip. Um, and I had good, that was the, in fact, that was one of the only stimuluses that I applied to an athlete over over a season and had really good results from it in terms of how it changed um, their kinematics, um, their kinetics, and their effectively their um, their economy of running. So from there, I very much um, adapted the the position. Um, I, I decided to change it from a from a pull type position and get it into a squat position. One of the reasons was because I was using more squatting in my training. Uh, than I was with those sort of pulling movements. So I got him into those positions from a squat perspective, again, looked at from a single leg, um, and again, had, had great results using those sort of um, exercises. Um, when I say results too, we were, we were pretty much getting changes of, you know, upwards of 30, 35% in changes in peak force over the period of training. So force was changing. They were getting better um, at producing higher levels of force isometrically, and what I also started noticing was changes in rate of force development, depending on how I cued and coached it as well. So I guess that was how the initial start of isometric training for running um, occurred. And then I had influences moving forward that, you know, I, this was a, a quite a long time ago. Again, now, um, seven, eight years ago at the English Institute of Sport, we had um, a guy very popular now named Franz Bosch, uh, come in and run a number of different workshops, come in and help with that problem solving around many different sports and different avenues. And it was then that I was really introduced to uh, the pre-activation. You know, we, we knew that was an important characteristic for for running and uh, often what the guys, the, the best runners do before they hit the ground is of significant importance and it's sometimes what separates them from the less, um, less able. And so I knew, that, I knew it was important and then, um, you know, uh, guys like Franz Bosch and then recent mentors like Essa Batola um, really drummed home to me the, the, the importance of that pre-activation before you hit the ground. Now, whether it's to alleviate muscle slack or whether it's just to get into a really good position to let your tendons do the work, 
um, is, is up to debate and up to up to people, the, the scientists that come up with those answers. But I certainly knew that it was important. So then I started developing the exercise more um, where I would have a free leg come into contact with the force plate. So they had to had to effectively develop stiffness or, or preactivate before they came and collided with the with the immovable object, which is the ground and then the bar. Um, so I played around and tinkered with different exercises and came up with different classifications of exercises using that same sort of, I guess, if you like, squat position, single leg squat position. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I, I noticed that all these forces were, were literally, literally vertical forces and that, that there was a high potential that a lot of it was coming from the knee extensor. So it's what I term now a knee isometric, although it's obviously there's, there's, there's definitely hip contribution to that movement. Um, but then I looked to expand on the exercises and looked to have more of a hip dominant, uh, if you like, horizontal focused um, action. And then also uh, I realized that, you know, the, one of the weakest parts of the chain is the ankle and that there was nothing really, um, uh, I guess, overloading or training the plantar flexors. Um, and so then I developed the ankle isometrics as well. And, and I had the same things running through all of those exercises where they'd start off with, with basic holds and they'd, they'd progress through to this pre-activation. So a free limb coming into contact with the ground. And then there was, I've, I developed two different levels of, of, of intensity with those exercises moving forward too. And so that's been a kind of a process that's taken me through now to sort of, I guess I, I finished those sort of, um, progressions and I'm not saying that they're a finished article by any stretch of the imagine there's a lot I don't know rather than what I do know about these um, these progressions and um, probably about a year and a half ago is where I came to a, a sort of a, a finale if you like at that particular stage in time where I thought right I think I've got a model to now replicate and put forward to athletes developing through the system um, and particularly uh, pertinent to max velocity positions um, at ground contact um, and since the, the I mean I, I should lay a lot of um, tributes to the Melbourne University group I think led by Adrian Lay or Lai spelled L-A-I who's come up with all the recent evidence now on on not only um, steady state running but max velocity and also acceleration and, and what's happening in the muscles um, in respect to ground contact so it looks like that group's coming up with some pretty strong evidence that is in fact it's an isometric contraction and and it's um it's the tendon that sort of uh recoils to give off the elastic energy to push our bodies into flight and forward um but yeah that's i guess a brief <laughs> brief uh, history of how i've sort of developed that isometrics throughout the years you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah, no, it's, that's really fascinating. And, and I like asking the background because I do think this is an area of training where people don't know that much about it. And I think one of the things that made uh, your the article you wrote uh, for Just Fly Sports so intriguing was not only just how well laid out and thoughtful in the results you're getting, but also the fact that people, there aren't that many books that, that have this stuff. Like people are like, holy cow, this is, but when you see it, it makes a lot of sense. Like it, Like what you said with that mid-thigh pull and hey, this is mid-stance and why wouldn't we want to be as powerful as we can in mid stance? And and I was also gonna say, in I also enjoy like I feel like a lot of people who are creating uh, and and merging uh, various training stimuli together and something very effective. Oftentimes, we're in high school or college, we're experimenting with all the training methods and trying to piece it together themselves because things that aren't in the book, all in the books and 
even a lot of the research that we have to kind of train and experiment and figure it out ourselves over time a little bit. You're hundred percent right. And, uh, <laughs> there, there isn't a lot out there. I mean, um, it's particularly on, on training, um, from an evidence standpoint, there's a lot of coaching manuals, which are great. And that's, you know, where we get a lot of our sources of information from to go and try things. But the evidence is, is clearly lacking. And in fact, I only got a young, um, a young guy from Germany. I got in contact the other day asking to be redirected to some articles, some evidence-based uh, work. Um, he's looking at doing his either PhD or master's project. And he wants to do it on isometric training for running. And he just wanted to know some background and, uh, I sadly have to tell them that there's just not a lot there at all. If anything, we just we draw some, you know, um, some theoretical uh, evidence, um, but and some some training based on you know untrained cohorts using isokinetic dynamometry fixed into isometric positions, and you know what changes occur over time in that respect, but nothing to do on you know isometric training and its influence on running based on the fact that. Um, the running um, action is, in fact, a ground contact isometric. So, uh, yeah, there's not a lot out there. So we, we do. We have to trial and error and we have to come up with our strategies. And then as long as we're recording and we're testing and we're seeing what, what effect or it has on performance. And, you know, th there's always that fine line between is it science? Is it real science? Is it a controlled experimental project or is it training? And that's why I often say the isometric training that I, I give an athlete supports the development of speed. I, I tried to be very careful my wording and not say the isometric training made them better sprinters. You know, it's, it's always, it supports the program. They got faster, which is great. Or it supports the program because they've um, had a better economy in running um, and so on. And um, there's only really been one time where I can pretty accurately say training did not change year to year. And it was a well-developed athlete, a senior athlete that the only different intervention that came into the program was the isometric training and there was a significant change in performance. Um, but even then, that's an N equals one. It's something that we can't blurt out on, on, on and call science. But for me, as a coach making decisions and problem solving, it's enough for me to know that there's potentially something working really strong in this particular type of training. Yeah, yeah. All those anecdotes, I think, as when you're the coach and you see all the factors and you have a really good handle on exactly what the athlete's doing, you see that results. I think it is good to at least give you that knowledge of direction of how, how that training tool can be implemented with other athletes and, and you know, what, what research can and should be done on it to, to validate that even more. But I, I, I'm, I definitely, I'm probably an anecdote guy to a fault. I love anecdotes. Uh, but I actually be interested in you sharing a little bit about that specific case study. Um, what was, uh, what was that athlete's status coming in? What were some specific isometrics that you utilized with them that may have addressed weaknesses or, or assisted strengths? And then what was the improvement? Yeah, so that particular athlete wasn't, a, I mean, it's going to be hard to recall that data now. It's such a long time ago. And that was really what formulated me driving forward on it. But um, I can certainly put it out in some sort of infograph or something to show that N equals one and what changed. Um, but uh, that was the case where we, we only used the one exercise back then. And that was it. So I just used the mid-thigh um, the single leg mid thigh pull and um, had great, you know, great results just off that exercise. Now, I, I tend not to just do that anymore. Now, I don't think it's it's the answer to just do this one exercise, and that's why I've developed um, the ankle and hip uh, ankle and hip isometrics, and also looking at higher intensity versions that that um, that take into account pre activity 
Um, but yeah, certainly there was um, uh, significant changes in, in ground contact time, uh, stride length and stride frequency. And again, um, breath by breath analysis on, on velocity of VO2 max um, showed that the economy uh, had also significantly changed as well. Um, but again, now um, I, I still think it's, it's only one piece of the puzzle. Um, we forget about how that tendon is used. If, you know, if we just concentrate only on the muscle action, that tendon, a great muscle action with a poor tendon ability and coordination is only going to take you so far. So I think it's always important to put it into the picture. So I always combine now my plyometrics and my isometrics together. Um, and I also look at different variations of the isometrics that bleed into more of a, I guess, um, a, a more running based uh, action, if you like, where there's, you know, you're off of a Smith machine, you're, you're unstable now and you're running um, or, or replicating a running type movement. Movement that comes to head on me at the moment is um, something I call eccentric stair hops, where you're literally vest loaded and you're hopping down the stairs. Um, and you can change that from stairs going bigger up to stadiums if you want even more uh, higher ground reaction force. And you're still staying in that stiff position as you literally almost roll down the stairs, if you like. And then that's so that's now combining quite a lot of things. You still don't get the, the plyometric out, so you don't get that tendon reaction out, but you're now making your isometric action more specific with relaxation, uh, with, with relaxing re relaxation rates and activation rates. And uh, the loading is still very, very high coming down the stairs as you roll down. Yeah, I like that. I like that holistic way of looking at it, like not thinking that one way is certainly the end all be all or will work for every athlete, but knowing how to put it into the whole program. And so which leads me to asking you, uh, how do you so maybe just for a sample population or uh, maybe, uh, uh, you know, 17 to 21 year old uh, sprint track and field sprinters. What does a typical year look like and how you're assessing those athletes, integrating isometric work into their training throughout their off-season, preseason, and competitive periods? A big question. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it is a big question. It's a real big question. And I will, um, unlike myself, I'd be a little bit succinct about it all. But um, look, I will always, um, I'll always start off the season, the preparatory season, after some real basic training. I will get into my eccentric training straight away. Um, the eccentric training, um, I don't want people thinking hamstrings eccentric, resilience eccentric work here. I'm talking about eccentric work in, again, triple extension type formats. So I'll get into my eccentric work working from time under tension and then really quickly getting off the longer time under tensions as in a slow, methodical lowering of the load up to some super maximal intensity work where I'll look at resistances certainly above that 110% mark. Sometimes some people, some athletes are able to go quite a bit above that and get up to 130. Um, but otherwise it, it's between that 110 and 140 type mark. It's super maximal. I, I call it unsuccessful breaking. So the, the effect is you're actually trying to resist the load, but it just pulls you into a complete, um, uh, into complete flexion effectively. Um, so I'll do that very early. That's a precursor for my isometric work. While I'm doing that work, of course, I'm still doing my, my heavy strength lifts. Um, I am, uh, and, and more from a, an acceleration bias and thought process. Um, and I'm doing my explosive lifts again from an acceleration um, thought process, block start thought process. Um, and then I'm already incorporating my isometrics, but the isometrics are the lower, uh, lower intensity isometrics. So the, the holds effectively. Uh, while I'm doing my holds, um, I'll progress that through uh, potentially 
12 weeks, the loads will increase on the holds and they'll be dictated by my isometric uh, push tests on the different um, on the different joint angles. So the ankle, the hip, and also the, the knee extension. I'll be monitoring that as that changes to see how they change in terms of their isometric strength as well. Um, the super maximal eccentrics will stay in uh, certainly up to, depending on the athlete, it can stay up. They stay up to about 12 weeks. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a thought process there that I'm really preparing my tendons effectively when I do that super maximal work. So there's, uh, and the second, and the second thought is I'm actually preparing them better for the really high intensity isometric work to come. So I, I don't think there's any secrets out there in terms of the research and everything else. Um, and the, and the, and the text that eccentric training is very, very effective to, to making someone stronger. Eccentric training, plus a lot of different other modalities are great for uh, developing the morphology of the tendon. But uh, in particular, I get bang for buck off of rather than doing time and attention work with eccentrics, getting super maximal loads in there. So I'm, I'm effectively hitting two things at once. I'm developing the tendon really effectively, and I'm also preparing them to be stronger for the isometric contraction. So in essence, that super maximal lift eccentrically is a failed isometric tra uh, contraction. So I'm actually preparing them ready um, as soon as we jump into the more intense um, isometrics. Now, based on the um, the age you, you mentioned this, sort of 17 to 21, I don't feel a massive urge to get them, those sort of cohorts up to um, the, the switches and the catches, these pre-tension movements before we, we, um, we, we hit the contact of, of a box or, or the floor. Um, but I'd rather just go through loading with them. So trying to get them up to loads that are, you know, 90% up to what they do in a pushing isometric, um, which, you know, when you, when you do the maths there, you can, you can quite easily tell that that's quite a lot of load on someone's back anyway, in say a mid stance position, single leg under a Smith machine. Um, so they can effectively go up to, uh, if you test someone in that position, they can go up to five times body weight, um, of forces through the, the the force plate in that position, so you know I'll 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 load up there up into you know three times body weight for sure, and as they progress through that and they tolerate that really well, then I'll start changing the um, the higher intensity stimuluses. So I basically program based on their competency rather than um, rather than necessarily the fact that uh, the seasonal demands suggest that we should be more specific now. Um, so I'll err on the side of caution there. Yeah. Uh, how long? Um, well, I'm glad you went into why you did the super maximal first before the isometrics. I, I just thought I was going to ask, like, because the super maximal is really intense and obviously the isometrics are, too. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned with the connective tissue and, and just overall strength building. That was a answered my, my question there. Uh, how long do you run that super maximal phase typically? And then also, what is there like a readiness, like a typical age or, or you've been doing traditional training for a certain amount of time before you do the super maximal? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And I've tried it and, and and failed. Not with injuries, but just failed. Just thinking, what am I doing? So I've tried eccentric work with um, with cohorts that aren't actually just very strong concentrically yet. And it's been an it's it's been a travesty. They're, they're just they're controlling nothing. They can't go over their hundred percent. Um, there's things that are just going haywire. Golgi tendon organ does not recognise um, how to overcome the the load and everything just it's a waste of time so i would definitely um suggest getting to a good level of strength um and you'll probably find getting to a good level of strength is enough anyway to have an effect on performance 
and when they are strong. Um, and so, for instance, I'm classifying strong as some of the young, again, around that age group, 17 um, at Aspire Academy just recently. These guys are, as youngsters, already squatting 2.2, 2.5 times body weight. Um, so they're very strong. I think the, uh, the, the, the weakest squat, if you like, was still at 1.75 times body weight. So they were getting good effects from the super maximal load. So they could effectively load up to those 100 to 10% uh, values and still be able to control that, um, that downward spiral of the weight effectively. So I think that's a pretty easy one to, to test. You know, if you've got a 1RM and you put 110% and they cannot control that whatsoever, they're probably not ready for their eccentric work. So you might as well just keep um, keep pushing them concentrically and you'll, you'll probably get enough bang for buck off the concentric work as it is. It's when they are at a, a stage where they are quite strong. That's when um, you can get much more effect from your eccentric work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Um, how uh, how long do you typically run them through that, that super maximal phase? And while you're doing that, how many days a week are you doing that type of work? Just one day a week with the super maximal work on per body part. So I often do the knee... Um, the knee work again this sort of I guess single leg squat type um, uh, uh, exercise I only do that by itself and then the ankle and the hip work I do together in a in a, in a, in a session so effectively I get hit once a week um, and that's plenty um, and I get good results off that so I've no temptation to do any more than that um, and uh, yeah to answer your question I'll take about four weeks Dependent again on the athlete, I'll take about four weeks to progress them through these time under tension variations until we get to a good eight-week block of super maximal loading. Um, we, we, we've got to remember that the tendons take a lot longer to adapt than muscle effectively. So the longer time we can give tendon to adapt, the better. So GPP, you'll find with my programs, a lot of eccentric work um, because of that. That gives me lots of time to adapt the tendon my plyometrics are all low uh, low impulse low intensity moderate to higher volume plyo work um generally sub maximal in terms of the body weight so they're actually lighter than they are and i'll use contraptions to help that um and then that's just giving me an overall big base to then do high intensity work once we get closer to SBP and you know after christmas sort of time you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Sure, no, that's that's good stuff. I, yeah, with that, with that base of super maximal work, I'm sure they're ready for a lot of really truly high force uh, output activities. I, I like what you said too about kind of splitting up the knee dominant and the hip and ankle dominant, and it kind of makes sense too. I actually have a couple of follow ups. Hopefully, I can kind of keep my train of thought going. But the first was um, in talking with Angus Ross, New Zealand, uh, on a lot of super maximal training ideas. He had mentioned that the super maximal work has such a high neural or cortical uh, load on the body. So did you, um, did you kind of have the one day a week uh, or the one knee and one ankle and hip to kind of keep that like at bay, like by not doing it too much. And, and then, or in that same idea of thought, are, are these athletes still seeing increases in just traditional performance from week to week, or are you seeing kind of a stagnation in performance and then a big jump at the end of the super maximal phase? Yeah, no, so I see really quick adaptations and really powerful adaptations. Uh, pardon the pun there in, in using the word power, but um, these adaptations occur straight away and for me. Um, and um, and uh, week to week, um, they continue to increase. Then there's a little bit of a plateau period. So let's say 
four weeks, an arbitrary number, four weeks um, of increases and, and real changes off just that one stimulus per week. And then a little bit of a plateau. Um, and then we just kind of work through that plateau. There's not a, another massive significant jump up from there um, beyond that sort of four weeks, but there are small changes beyond that. So if you like a huge spike in, in adaptation for the first four weeks and then a leveling off a little bit, and then a gradual increase for the next sort of four weeks if I run a 12-week sort of cycle on that. Um, you're bang on right. You can't do a lot of it. That's why it's just once a week. I'll place that effectively around the sprint coach's training plan um, to avoid DOMS um, uh, affecting performance. Um, the beauty about this work is it's, it's generally around um, a bias towards acceleration training in most of the coaches that I've had the pleasure of working with. And it doesn't seem to affect the coordination and, and the feel of acceleration. So they're able to just power through their excels without a problem, even though they've been working heavily eccentrically. Um, now, flip that around after Christmas, um, uh, then there's, there's an issue. If you, if you carry on with that heavy eccentric work, even though it's not novel anymore, and that's, that's, the, that's the key. If, if something's not novel, then you don't get these adverse effects as much. But I just find that still, even if I'm carrying on with the super maximally centric work at that stage, there's disruptions to coordination. The feel's not quite right. Athlete reported, coach reported, the rhythm's not there. There's a whole heap of things going on. So I just err on the side of caution there and, and then take away my, my, my maximally centric stimuluses. And, and, you know, knowing now with the evidence that um, my, my options of switches and catches, uh, uh, I guess, following neural pathways or neural strategies similar to eccentric contractions or muscle action should i say i'm pretty happy that i'm still able to to maintain um for lack of a better word or or keep those eccentric processes going so um there's not changes massive changes in morphology and and um and strength based off of, of the eccentric work we've done previously and the fact that i'm still incorporating exercises with neural strategies similar to eccentric work yeah that's good stuff uh do you uh do you, no, when you're doing like those uh, eight weeks and you're the, they're they're going up those first four and then they're kind of moving at a little bit more flat level. Are you are there undulations, significant undulations in that super maximal period? So are you going like two weeks in an easy week or three weeks in an easy week? Uh, how does that? Because it's a lot of high intensity neural stuff. Are you? Uh, how are you kind of cycling that through that eight week time period? Yeah. So the first four weeks is is incremental. I'm, I'm I'm by far a very passive. Um, in my older years now, I'm far more passive in my prescriptions and my progressions. Hence why I keep sort of referring to the fact that the holds and the pushes are probably enough for most athletes moving forward. Like you don't have to do the switches and the catches. Um, they're like for the cream of the crop, you know, the real top level guys that, you know, are very strong and have warranted those progressions over time. That's why I'm very cautious when I talk about um, a system of training and, and, and blurt something out um, without actually thinking, or, or making it very clear that I progress slowly and methodically. So super max, um, you know, a hundred over a hundred percent one RM super max. Um, it is super max cause it's, it's over the max of your concentric. However, it's still very manageable. And, you know, if you use that for one week and then you go to 107.5%, 115%, 120%, 125, it's a slow progression upwards and your body's slowly getting used to it. Um, and it's not this big spike where you're just dropping the hammer and coming down, right, our first week of super maximus, max, we're going to do 125%. So don't forget, I've gone through this time and attention phase that's last four weeks. I've then bleeded in percentage changes over four weeks slowly 
and I've been very careful with the volume that I've given them. You don't need a lot of volume in my experience of this sort of work. You can get away with three triples um, on each leg, for instance, um, and have some serious changes in, in, um, in, in adaptations effectively. So yeah, and after that four week period, particularly when they start plateauing, then I'll be much more um, prescriptive around what my loading is gonna be. So we'll actually switch into time under tension work sometimes there where it's a submaximal load. So we're working off 90%, for instance, and we're just gonna control it down for five seconds. And then we'll go back up um, and step load effectively over the weeks then come back off again and step load again up for the final four weeks. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that like create kind of creative undulation there. And then yeah, the slow cooking effect, especially with that stuff. And and I think a lot of people's temptation would be, oh yeah, let's just jump in at 120% or 130%. And and uh which would definitely probably you know set off those that alarm phase <laughs> uh pretty excessively for a lot of athletes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you'll get a huge heightened response, but you'll probably um lose your job doing it as well. And uh, you probably lose the trust of the athlete, lose the trust of the coach, coach and everything along with it. So, um, <laughs> and there's no need for it, to be honest, like small steps, um, young developing athletes, and especially when we're talking about a, a sport like sprinting, where, you know, you don't have to be ready straight away. You've got a nice long preparation period, then slow burn it. It's always my best option to slow burn. And when we, we come down with almost no issues when we're doing a slow burning approach. Yeah, that that's great. Uh, now, now when you're doing those phases too, are you doing like some traditional training, like traditional up and down reps at the same time, other forms of exercise, or is it pretty much just the super maximal work? No, I still am. I still am doing it, and that still that formulates. So that'll occur early in the session. So that will be a um, a a I guess one that I want the freshest for. So they'll be the freshest for whatever this whatever general exercise they're doing. So I'm pretty. I'm pretty straightforward. I'm pretty simplistic. Um, it might not sound it, but I am pretty simplistic. I'll do a bilateral heavy lift and I'll do a bilateral uh, power lift. And, um, and they're basically for acceleration um, power and block start power. So I might use some um, little tweaks around the exercises to be a little bit more specific around what's sort of occurring in a block or what's, what's occurring in acceleration. But they're my go-tos and they're, they're always there and always featured early on in the, um, uh, the workout. However with a where i've only ever done that for four weeks so they've literally come back um we've had some circuit-based preparation conditioning type work for a couple weeks and then we've done a strength phase uh for four weeks and that's it that's all they've done all season and i've managed to take them back to where they were um in terms of their prs and then from then on that work just slowly in terms of the way it's done, as in you know maybe squatting to box or squatting off pins or or deadlifting or whatever it is. That work kind of just disappears, and then um, you know we move, we accelerate that process a lot quicker into uh, the isometrics and 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 other work. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely, I really like that progression ideas behind it, and. Uh... I was going to ask too. So you had mentioned you have knee dominant, uh, super maximal. I think a lot of people would be familiar with like just squats or, or Bulgarian split squats. Uh, I'd like you to uh, share a little bit about like the hip and the ankle dominant. Cause I, I know as far as I've seen, I've, I don't know if I've seen much of any work, especially super maximal for uh, an ankle, uh, those types of exercises. And especially in light of track coaches, people interested in top end speed. Uh, what's your take on those movements? Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of fumbling 
looking around in the dark to come up with certainly the hip one. Um, but the ankle one's really straightforward, really easy to talk to about that one. That's, um, say, Smith Machine standing on a block with your heels under the block, two legs up, supported up as well, so they can effectively squat it up to get it up to the highest peak, and then they're just lowering it down on the one leg. Um, you can also assist them up as a coach as well, so you can help them with that bar to get up, and they're lowering it down with one leg. Um, so simple as that, really. Two up, one down, plus assistance, um, either from uh, an extra little mini squat from the athlete and uh, potentially the coach also helping push it up. And then they just got to fight like all hell to, 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 to not let uh, the weight overcome them so quickly. So they've just got to fight. Um, so that's the ankle one. Pretty straightforward. You can also use a machine for that, so whatever, whatever you have accessible and available to you. Um, I've seen guys do that on, on, on sort of leg press type machines, which is, which is absolutely fine. Um, my, my tendency is not to use that, but to get them more upright with their hips extended. Um, and then the, uh, the hip dominant super max is again, a, a little bit of a tricky one, um, to load it, but, uh, and I don't know how I'm going to explain this, but let's say <laughs> we get, um, almost on a hip bridge position, but like if you, if you imagine your body in a V shape, so your bums lower than your shoulders and your heel. Um, I basically get a bench pull machine and tilt at one end of it down. So it's on a massive angle. So effectively the body, the, the upper body, the trunk is lying back on this machine supine, this bench supine, and the heels up higher on a higher type bench. Um, the hips free, so it doesn't actually come in contact with the bench as such. And I effectively put a dips belt around the athlete and hang weights off of it. And so they've effectively got this V-shaped position. They'll push up. I'll help them up with the load. Um, so they get up to a, a straight line from heel, hip to shoulder. And then they have to drop one leg like take one leg off and lower that down. And the, the more and more weight I can apply to their waist, obviously the more that they're just having to break, trying to break the action um, rather than be able to control it down effectively. So that's the most difficult one to get into, the hip, hip side of things. Now, again, that's not eccentric work. That's super maximal work. So eccentric work in your hip is not a problem. Everyone can just apply double leg, single leg to pretty much any bridging type movement they do. But when you want to get really high loads on them, um, my only way to do that is with a dips belt uh, where you can pack on the kilos and then a sandbag across their waist as well. So, you know, I guess the strongest guys guy I've got up to that who, who've done well at that sort of load have been um, lifting around or lowering, shall I say, controlling the lower of around 60 to 70 odd kilos. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. I I really like uh, it kind of reminds me. I don't know, maybe uh, if you're familiar with this, but Brett Contreras' Scorcher machine. Um, the, like, it was like, it, I think the same thing. And he had mentioned how that was better than just having like the feet on the ground, like having the feet elevated, you get a little more glute and a little more hamstring to it all. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. I think I have heard him. I've not seen the machine yet, but, um, yeah, I think I've heard him trying to explain it. He, he probably described it far better than I can describe the exercise, but I'll, uh, I'm happy to send a, send a picture through or something one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I get that. That's that actually, it does make sense. It made sense in my mind. So I think hopefully everyone out okay. there can, can figure that out. I'll put a, I'll put a, uh, a video as well, um, in the show notes. Uh, so I wanted to get into a little bit then about the isometrics and well, the first question, maybe leading into it with the sprint idea of sprint topics is, uh, maybe top end speed versus acceleration. You said you had kind of tested people's ability and capacity in all three joints, the ankle, hip, and knee. Did you start to notice any trends with people who are really, maybe really good accelerators versus people who were uh, better at top end speed and, and how they were doing at the various isometric tests? 
Yeah, look, um, again, I think I'd say yes from a trend perspective, from a coach looking at it. I see the guys who are, uh, are better at the hip exercise, um, better at excels, uh, b- better at the acceleration side of things. And that makes sense why. However, um, if I get far guys far more smarter than me to run the statistics on it, it doesn't seem to show it as clearly. Um so I guess that's that's the simplest answer I can give it. You know, for me, it makes sense that um, the hip dominant exercise would be better for um, acceleration side of things. However, at the moment, maybe it's just the, the, the lack of data. It's not showing it from a statistical standpoint. Um, however, for sure, the stronger guys um, from a peak force side of things on on pretty much the knee dominant exercise for sure, um, they are always for me. They're the best accelerators um, off, off the really short distances. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense with the knee dominant, uh, no doubt. I, I'm sure, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of factors probably at play in exactly what and how like the ankle and hip play into it all. Um, it makes me think about, I know those EMG studies on sprinting and even acceleration. It's like all the muscle activity in the glutes and um, and hamstrings and quads is kind of like almost before the, the athlete even gets to mid stance when that foot is hammering down. So I suppose there could be a lot of factors going on exactly what, but the squat makes sense there for sure. Yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, if, if perhaps we bent the knee up and I have been playing around lately now, since some of, um, uh, Lay's, um, recent research on acceleration and, and the isometric component of acceleration. Um, I've been playing around now with isometrics, um, in an acceleration format, um, and the help of a, a friend, Jake Schuster as well. And some of his, his, um, ideas around using a prowler and locking it up isometrically, but, but also, you know, Brett Contreras' type movements and, and doing them, um, a hip thrust from a you know bent knee position isometrically um, is something I've been looking at. I'm probably not in the best place to comment on it just yet because it's really it's one, it's at that stage where it's you and your colleagues trying it out, not dishing it out to athletes just yet. So um, and I still I still can't help. I know the science is saying um, there's an isometric action, but for sure there is muscle um, muscles are shortening, fibers are shortening. Um, and there is a definite concentric element. We can just see that from the fact that the knee is extending and the hip is extending when we're accelerating. So um, that's not going to change my mind in terms of, you know, what I do for acceleration type work in the gym. But um, I'm sure uh, one of the things we see often is the guys with the weaker ankles have this real dissipation of force around the ankles when they're accelerating. So I see some real merit in, um, and I do do this actually, I do isometrics off of, um, uh, seated calf raise work as well. And that's really to try and hit that position of acceleration and getting that real strong ankle lock in, um, in those first three strides where we're really pushing back horizontally and the, and the knee is, is bent at a much more, uh, at a greater extent. Yeah. I love it. I'm glad you brought that up. And actually I was going to say between the Smith machine and the seated calf raise, like you go to the YMCA or the, the fitness club and you see those <laughs> and it's never in the, at the sports performance. So maybe that'll start making the comeback, but the seated calf raise makes perfect sense with that bent leg and acceleration and the stiffness there. Uh, I like, I'm glad you brought that up. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, now there's going to be, uh, oh mate, <laughs> yeah. Again, it's it's one of those things. You know, thinking about things more and more. Applied many different systems to training, but when I, you know, when I'm looking at an ankle that's not receptive 
on the ground when they're accelerating and I can put them in a prowler, a heavy prowler, and there's still that give. I can put them in a heavy sled towing and there's still that give. Then I need to come back a little bit more and see how can I specifically strengthen this joint. And yeah, just because it's out of fat, it doesn't really bother me because I'm just more interested in the athletes oh, no doubt. Uh, getting better. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It doesn't matter what I don't. Yeah. Who cares what people think about it for sure. <laughs> do you do super maximal on the seated calf raise or is that more just a Smith machine? I do. Yes, I do. That's yeah, not, I do that as well. Yeah. That's not some. Yeah. Pe- that's not something you see that many people at the health club doing. <laughs> super maximal seated calf raise. That'd be a trip though. I'm sure it'd probably show up on YouTube videos if somebody was because people would have no idea what they're doing. But I, I like that a lot. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> uh so uh yeah we're i want to get to this actually before uh we run out of time but so you're moving past the super maximal phase and and um so into some of the isometric work and maybe i'll just try to keep this pretty simple but so if you had say three if you could pick only three isometric movements to do for a, a sprinter or someone who wants to improve their athletic speed uh which ones would you pick for them and why would you do it uh that's that's like um asking me which one of my sons is my favorite about that. no no um let's see okay so if, if if they were a developmental sprinter um you know if I, I would go for a hip and an ankle movement in fact i'd always go for an ankle movement whether they're a development or a high level sprinter they would always do an ankle movement and the reason being is i've actually for bang for buck I've always found great improvements from a stiffness reactive strength type performance uh, from my ankle work. So it's a go-to for sure for me. Um, just one word of caution with the ankle side of things is you have to have that year round. If you stop doing that, they will get sore, um, uh, especially if you're doing um, the higher intensity work. So there's an ankle always in there. If they're a development athlete, they'll work off the holds. Again, remember that mindset is around them working off a hold and increasing load over time uh, gradually. Um, they're, if they're a developing athlete, they probably haven't got the prerequisite strength anyway. So holding and loading is, is way more effective. Um, with a higher level guy um, or girl, I would be um, inclined to, to, to take that up a little bit more um, in terms of the intensity. So I would look at an ankle isometric switch, for example. So they still have, um, I used to call it a false switch because there's always a part of time where two feet are slightly in contact with the box um, or the whatever you're using. Um, so I used to call it a fake switch, but but nonetheless, it is still a switch and you're still, uh, the requirement to pre-activate before you come into contact is still there. So yeah, I'd take them to an ankle iso switch um, for a higher level guy. Um, development athlete, I'd probably also do a, a hip dominant exercise and... Um, with this, I'd probably get them to push. And the reason why I'd get them to push instead of hold and ISO push is so they, it, it's almost its almost easier pushing to, to cue athletes where they need to push from and to tell them, right, more from your glute or more from here or um, try and activate this part of your muscle. And so, because they're developing it still and they're still learning um, how to do these sort of things, I'd probably have them doing the push in that position rather than they get into a hold position, they just hang on for dear life with whatever's going to hang on, you know? Um, and with a high level guy, I'd, I'd probably, because generally I'm probably taking out the squats and the deadlifts uh, quite significantly early on. Um, they would have their replacement exercise 
with a really high neural output and a really high rate of force development would be the knee ISO push. So I'd have them in with the ISO push. Um, yeah, so I guess I'd leave that as, as, as just the two. Um, so if there was nothing else, if the, if the prescription police came in and said, <laughs> listen, you've only got five minutes or 10 minutes, you can't do anything else, have two exercises, I'd be the developmental guy, would do the hip ISO push and the ankle ISO hold. And the higher level, high well-trained guy would do the knee ISO push again for his big neural output. And then the ankle ISO switch just to get a bit more specific um, in terms of the relaxation, co-contraction, uh, activation type of work. Awesome. I, I, got, I got two quick questions for you. Actually, uh, the first is, can you describe the, I think the ankle ones make sense pretty well. And I, I know I've seen your videos. I think a lot of people listening to this have. Can you describe the hip ISO push and the knee ISO push quickly, how those get set up and how they're executed? Yes, absolutely. I will. And, and I've got to make an apology. And I've now since been so much better at taking videos and taking pictures while I'm coaching or getting someone to do it because my video library was absolutely diabolical. And so when you <laughs> ask for those videos, I just, I didn't have great ones and I'm really sorry about that. And the reason why I know they weren't great was I spent a bit of time at QAS Queensland Academy of Sport over the, the Christmas break with my good friend, Chris Caviglio, um, who's the head of, head of SNC there. And he was doing some of these isometric works, which was quite flattering, massively flattering for me to be honest, but they were, they, I knew that some of these things didn't clearly show up on the video because they weren't quite, how I had come up with them. So I know that probably people are making mistakes. So I will definitely do a whole bunch of new videos and do something at least to get it out there so there's no sort of mis misconstrued ideas or whatever. But okay, so the knee, um, sorry, the ankle dominant one, did you say? Uh, the, hip the hip iso push and the knee iso push. Uh, okay, knee iso push really easy. So you just, in the Smith machine, you've latched it around so you cannot ascend the bar any further. So you make sure that they're positioned effectively um, for a mid-stance position, whatever that may be that you, you feel is is, um, is appropriate for your athlete, I guess, um, or base it around literature and performance, anal performance analysis um, and, and the research, the plenty of research that's out there. So effectively stand on one leg. Um, bar is uh, around that uh, mid-trap area, uh, sorry, um, the, the, the upper trap area, and you effectively have a straight line between your shoulder, your hip, and your ankle. Um, and if you're looking from the side, you'll see the knee just come forward slightly off that vertical line. And all you do is push maximally into, into the bar with the hooks actually holding you from actually um, from, from moving the bar any further upwards. Um, if you don't have uh, access to Smith machines and whatnot, I would A, say get one, but <laughs> B, uh, just overload um, off of high pins, a really, really heavy bar, and it'll have to be really heavy because believe it or not, you're very, very strong in that position and you'll be able to slightly shift, you know, 300 odd kilos. You know, most people will do that. Most sprinters will do that pretty easily, to be honest. Um, and then you can just use that, just lock it into the side of a, of a rack so it's not moving so much. And again, get into that position and drive as hard as you can. On the hip um, ISO push, well, you're effectively lying under a Smith machine in this case, but again, you can just use a, um, a bar on the floor, um, heavily, heavily loaded. Again, you're not that strong in this position. Generally, if, if someone's pushing around three times their body weight and uh, sorry, around their system mass, which is the system mass is about 30% as in what's being actually lifted up at the heel. Um, so I guess you can, you can make that one times body mass. So as long as you've got one times body mass on that bar, not many people should be able to shift it. Um, you lie down in like a hip bridge position, but you have a small box um, right down on like a hip thrust 
uh, position where you would have that box just on the smaller, the, the smaller angle of your shoulder blade, just under there. You have the bar across your hips and you just got to make sure that you're at the right height that when you start applying force um, and you're in that mid-stance position looking from the side view, that you're, uh, you're perfectly in contact with the bar around that hip crease and you push as hard as you can with the one leg. Um, as simple as that. Um, so the heel, effectively, I always use a force plate for this because um, I've been lucky and blessed. Um, so the heel will be on the force plate and I'll make sure that's at a similar height. Um, it can be lower. That's not a problem than the box. But the box is always a very small box um, that just literally lets you elevate your hips off the ground and into the bar. So it's a little bit of playing around to get the right position. But once you've got that position, you just go all gun ho into the bar as hard as you can um, with hopefully a force plate reading. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so simple too. It's really just taking kind of sprint stance and either loading it vertically as hard as you possibly can or horizontally. It's, it's. I mean, I guess that does take some tinkering with, but it, the the basic concept is actually pretty simple. Yeah, exactly. And like, and to be honest, like, uh, um, that's not that's not my. Um, I'm not the most creative person in the world, so but I'm potentially a very good thief. And so that sort of stuff has come from, um, I know John Goodwin's group um, at St. Mary's College University in, um, in Strawberry Hill in London there. Um, they have been playing around with uh, another university at a lot of these isometric positions and looking at how that affects um, or if, if whether that's a performance predictor as well in, in acceleration-based running. And, and I've seen them doing that. They've been in our gyms actually at Aspire Academy with Jonas Doty's group are doing it. And, and I've, I've seen it as a test similar to how I saw the ISO pool a long time ago as a test and thought, hmm, what about training? Um, especially if we're, um, our muscles are acting isometrically, why don't we train that way as well? So that's, that's effectively shame, unshamelessly stolen from them. Yeah, it's it's great stuff though. I mean, it's it's I think it's just so it's just applicable. It's it's the best way to think of specific training in many ways. I mean, I I know in my experience training experience, I mean, I've seen all this stuff in the weight room that kind of looks specific where you're moving barbells in particular ways, but I mean, nothing can really replicate sprinting, so why not just make it really simple from a muscle perspective? And I like how you said too, it makes it easy to coach which muscle is firing as well and and it's just such a great great setup. I I really like it. I was going to ask you too, if you, if you don't have force plates, I mean, I guess you could just yell at your athlete and try to get them really motivated and hope for the best, I suppose, huh? Is there's really not too much else you can do, but just push as hard as you can. Unfortunately, yes, that's, that's all you can do. And, um, I've got to be honest with you, even in the most motivated athlete, and I can, I can attest to this because we've, we've done in the past little trials from really good strength power athletes have had, you know, one athlete with a coach, in the gym doing an isometric pull um, with no motivation. And this is a world-class athlete um, who's highly motivated in his training environment. And then replicating the same thing now, but with the teammates and some girls in the gym yelling <laughs> and screaming and watching him. And you've seen changes um, way outside of, you know, smallest worthwhile changes. So, you know, it jumps of uh, 75 to 100 newtons just because of the, the state that they're in and the people that are watching and the feedback on the screen. So yeah, unfortunately, I would I would hazard a guess that you will always be down, um, whether it's yourself doing it or your athletes doing it, if you don't have that feedback. Having said that though, you're gonna be really close. You're gonna be above 90% and that's his training stimulus. So it's a positive thing. Um, but yeah, just, just, just understand that you need high levels of motivation. And I think that's something um, probably the people should glean if those guys who use isometric tests, the way you run that test 
is really important because if you want a maximal, maximal effort, you need to create the right environment for a maximal effort. Yeah, I agree. I worked in the biomechanics lab uh, my when I was in graduate school, and we when we do the isometric test, we would have to yell at the athletes like for their their ten second bound to get the maximal EMG. And one of the guys who was the 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 lab assistant who did it was hilarious. He was this little small PhD, and like he was so quiet too. He, he it took a lot for him to yell at the the athletes or the subjects to actually get them to it. It's really funny. I was like, come on. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's Joel. That's not what I normally see of um, YouTube clips of uh, the American coaches out there. So it's clearly not a coach. It must be a PhD. Yes, yeah, it was very research. Yeah. It was a very research driven. I'm sure if you got the football strength coach in there, the outputs would have gone way up. Like, like yeah. that would actually be a great research project itself. Like researcher versus the strength coach you know the head strength uh, coach coming in there big difference absolutely absolutely pull out of fear, pull out of fear. <laughs> yes what emotion causes you to be the strongest <laughs> maybe some people it's different um, uh, yeah hey, so i well time for one last question and you mentioned it actually i think this is fascinating but uh you said uh, higher level athletes so you're more elite people people who have been around for a while people who are you know, probably mid to mid 20s early 20s uh, high level competitors you said they they go through their squat and deadlift phase and then they kind of just run on isometrics through the, they're more prone to be able to do that and not need the traditional lifting throughout their competitive season was did i hear you correctly on that one yeah that's correct um they would just do some more special type um special strength so they'd be on their their sleds the weighted sleds and the prowlers um uh and they would just do their isometrics so um i guess just you know rewinding a little bit you know these these there was it was all I'm, I'm a big believer in you know Bondichuk's type um, hierarchy of exercises and always having um, something close and resembling the sporting action loaded within within the program and um, with acceleration that was really easy like really easy there's so many things you can do even outside of the the sled and and um, prowler type movements there's heaps of exercises you can do from a jumping perspective on one leg um, you can quite easily um, one of the things people forget is at the block start, there's, there's you know, about you know, around that 20% taken up by your arms in the block start. So you have to create your own pretension in the blocks without overdoing it because if you overdo it, you go forward. So there's exercise you can do in the gym to do that. And it's endless. Acceleration and uh, block starting is, is endless. But Max V, there was kind of nothing. It was kind of uh, plyometrics and that was kind of it. Maybe some some hopping and you know some really specific plyometrics which i do and i do that incorporation of my isometrics but there's nothing that kind of stemmed the the general high neural output high rate of force development um uh, zone plus the yes this is literally like performance how it's actually working in in um in in situ in in the actual event and so that's why isometrics came on board and, and that's why now it becomes a big stable um, staple in an athletes that's warranted and I can happily get everything I want to out of a, a, a traditional exercise in terms of, like I said, a high neural output, um, lots of tension in the muscle. Uh, I can do that out of my isometrics and I can do that with less fatigue in the system. I can do that with them able to recover quicker off the back of the exercise. In fact, if you're really clever with the way you load it, they, they don't actually fatigue off it. You know, there's there's a decrement in force, but then, you know, after three hours, they've almost come back to baseline and they're absolutely fine. And then certainly next day's performance, normally that's a recovery day anyway. By the time we get to sprinting again, the guys have felt like they've barely done anything. But I've had a huge hit in their neural system. 
from a rate of force development and a max force uh, state standpoint. I've still done things um, in their training that warrant, you know, just athletic development. Um, I've worked their posterior chain intensely from an eccentric standpoint, um, uh, and particularly their hamstrings, um, and then they're just ready to go. So I, I, I'm very cautious that around the part of the season where an athlete needs to express themselves fast, that there's so many sensitive elements within the chain of running fast that the, that, that need a really high level of coordination that really require synergies working really effectively. And if I put fatigue in that system, they don't hit those same levels of coordination. Yeah, they might run fast, but it's not exactly how they should be doing it. So I rather, in a strong guy, strip it out and just let them run. And, and do exercises that still hit what I need to hit so things don't regress through the season, but I don't feel the urge in a strong guy to go and, and, and make him squat heavy or, or um, even do an Olympic lift derivative, uh, a, a, a partial, um, I almost regress that right back to say an explosive rack pull if I need to do that. Um, and, and I'll very much look at the individual and what they need to when I, when I apply that, but but yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I look at it. Let, let them be fresh and let them do what they need to do best. Um, and that itself is an amazing stimulus. And I'd like anyone that doesn't work in, in, in speed and, and sprinting, I can tell you that one of the best neural stimulus you can get is sprinting, but you've got to do it properly. You've got to have high outputs. You've got to have decent recoveries and you've got to space it through the week. And that's probably one of the best neuromuscular sessions you can get. And then everything around it, you can fill with your, with your general work. That's not a problem, but um, yeah. I want guys fresh. I want them to be able to coordinate things perfectly. And so the way I do that without losing strength and effectively rate of force development is in a really specific way with my isometric training. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think what you just said there is 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 really just amazing stuff. And I'm sure any uh, track coach or sport coach with athletes who have to be experienced, who have to be their fastest would definitely agree. I mean, that high-speed sprinting, especially if you're going faster than 10 meters a second, and even not, it's just such a complex, coordinated task to be able to do the least interference to that while still keeping athletes strong and then recruiting motor units. I, it makes all the sense in the world to me. No, 100%. And look, you know, the, we've, I've only just recently um, had um, another great colleague, mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Phil Graham-Smith, come back with some, some data for me um, on rate of force development with, with the different exercises from the general strength stuff to the the the, um, the explosive ballistic work to again our my, my isometric our isometric work you know and um it, it's it's without without fail it is also you know we talk about predictors of sport performance and everyone talks about rate of force development so the ability to produce force very quickly um, being a determinant and this seems to trump everything um, even unloaded jump squats for instance. So you're able to put out way more force. It's an advantage position. You're in the position anyway. You know, there's no movement occurring. Your rate of force development is very high. Um, and your your neural output and your, your, your peak forces are also very, very high. In fact, the highest highest recorded without a, with, uh, with any of the exercises, the traditional, traditional exercises that we do. So, yeah, it's certainly bang for buck. Um, but again, I don't, wanna, I don't want everyone to think that that's, that's all I do. I do a lot of things and I think a lot about how I apply my work and when guys are warranted and they've ticked a lot of the boxes along the way in their development, then this just happens to be a really good stimulus that I give them that keeps them also very fresh. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was like, shoot, we didn't even get into any of the ideas with uh, you kind of switching gears in the AFL and, and all the hats you wear and the things you've done. Uh, but but man, it's it's been a great podcast, Alex. I, I seriously have learned an awful lot and just it's such a fascinating topic to me. Uh, I think it's a uh, it's it's also too it's just such a simple thing right like and the best tools are usually the simplest we tend to over complex that you know get things so complex that they're so far off of the actual skill we're trying to improve and it's just such great work you do i really appreciate the time you took to be on the podcast today. and thank you for all your knowledge and sharing that with us today i appreciate it joel thanks for hooking up originally to get uh, get me to write that article and and it's been a pleasure i'm just so sorry it took so long to get onto this uh, onto this um, podcast but we're here we've done it <laughs> yeah absolutely well thank you so much i really appreciate it cheers joel all the best that does it for another episode thanks for tuning in today uh, i can't imagine you walked away from that one without learning uh just heaps of information on Getting outside the concentric, using getting really digging into those isometric and eccentric phases and how to fully leverage them in a really simple manner. And I learned a lot through not only listening, but also going back and editing and taking notes. So great episode. I feel like it's a classic. If you liked it, share it. Share it with your on your social media, with your community. I think what Alex is doing is really pushing the industry forward. Uh, if you like the show, please don't hesitate. Leave us a rating, review, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Also, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, supplies of high-end training technology, uh, free lap timing system, gym wear. Also, Alex mentioned force plates. They sell force plates. Check out that aspect of their store. They have a guide to force plates uh, through their blog, as well as many other great things through their blog. But um, just uh, <clears throat> they have a technology guide through their blog, along with a lot of other great articles. So uh, check out what they're doing. Uh, they are a great company doing good things for the industry. So we will catch you back next week. Uh, have a great one.